What a morning it's already been, man. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I don't even know that we need to preach, but we do because obviously God's word's important. So we're going to do that. But man, it's just been a full morning. I'm glad I still got a voice after that incredible, incredible worship set. We've been looking forward to this announcement for a little while now. So super glad that we're able to finally have that, that news out there. But I also need to be honest with you guys that there's something else I need to share with you. There's a, a personal confession that I have to make, okay? I'm just going to get it out there right up front. You guys know that we like to go deep and get real here, so I'm just going to tell you something that I need to get off my chest, okay? I am a control freak. You laugh. It's true. I, I'm a control freak, right? I want things to go my way. And if I'm being honest, I've always been this way, okay? So as I was thinking about this this week, I realized my earliest memories, back when I was probably three or four years old, I wanted things my way, y'all, because I did not like taking naps. I hated taking naps, right? My mom would put me in my room. She would tell me to go to sleep, but I'm like, nope. I'm the boss of me. I'll go to sleep when I want to and where I want to. And it actually didn't stop with naps. It continued into my teenage years, which ironically is when I actually started to like taking naps. The problem is now that I despise curfews, right? I'm not sure any of you... Recall those teenage years, right, where, where curfews were like your, your enemy. And so I'd push the envelope a little bit. I'd stay out a little bit later than I was supposed to. Maybe even snuck out of the house once or twice. My parents who are going to watch this later are probably learning that for the first time. <laughs> Statute of limitations is up. It's all good, right? This middle child was able to, to kind of pull a fast one on you, mom and dad. But the reality is it didn't stop there. Right? I wish I could say that it got better as I got older, as I got married, as I had children but it didn't. Right? If I'm being honest, I still really just want my way. Right? I struggle with this desire to take control of things so that my world lines up the way that I want it to. Right? There's still a part of me that is laser focused on my comfort, my desires, my wishes, my goals. Me, me, me. I know that's not a very pastory thing to say, but I'm just being honest with y'all. That's still just something that I have to struggle with each and every day. And the truth is, I'm not alone in this. If I were to take a poll, I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. I'm pretty sure if I were to ask you if you struggle with these things, I would see probably every hand in here raised. Right? We all have this desire. We all have this urge just to want things done our way. We want to be in charge. Right? If you don't believe me, just open up to literally any page of your Bible. Right? And you will see that this problem is not something that is new to us. This is the way that it has always been. This is why if you look back in, in the book of Exodus, God calls his children a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. It's because they didn't want to bend to anyone else's wishes or to do things anyone else's way. So again, this isn't new to me or to, to you or to us. It's also not something that's unique to our culture either. Because ever since sin entered into our world, we have been locked in this power struggle. We've been locked in a power struggle both with God and with each other, right? Ever since sin entered into the world back in the garden, we have craved control, and we've proven that we are willing to do anything it takes to grab hold of that control for ourselves. This right here explains why there is tension in your relationships, right? It explains why you feel like you're fighting a, a losing battle with your kids, and it explains why your job is so dang frustrating, well, your boss gets on your nerves. This explains this because we are locked into this power struggle. But this isn't the way it was supposed to be. 
Right? I think we all know that at some level, that this isn't the way it's supposed to be because we are supposed to live in peace and harmony with one another. Somewhere in our inner being, we, we know that to be the case. And yet, even with ourselves, we feel this power struggle. We're supposed to live in peace and in harmony with one another. And in the book of Genesis, we see for a brief moment that we had that. Remember, Adam and Eve, they're, they're walking in the garden in perfect community with God. That is what we were created for. So the question is, then, how do we go back to that? Right? How can we give up this power struggle and pursue peace in our relationships? I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. The answer is found in Jesus. Right? The answer is found in Jesus because not only did he come to give us that peace, that peace that we could never achieve on our own, but he also paved the way so that we would know how we could pursue peace with others. So this morning, as we continue our second to last message in this Masterpiece in Progress series. That's what we're going to be after. Pursuing peace and setting aside that power struggle. But here's the thing, that peace, much like the peace that Jesus came to give us, it's going to come at a cost. It's going to come at a cost. I'm just forewarning you, whether you are a husband or a wife, whether you are a parent or a child, a boss or an employee, there is a cost to each of us in order to follow this example of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us again because I feel like we need to just have a bit of a posture of humility this morning as we embrace God's word. Would you join me with a word of prayer? Jesus, we thank you that you are the prince of peace. Thank you that you didn't just come to bring us peace, but that you showed us what it looks like to pursue it for ourselves. Jesus, would you grant us the wisdom and the courage we need this morning to take your word to heart and to follow your example by laying our lives down so that we might find peace with one another. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, you know that we've been talking about this idea of what it looks like to imitate God. Right at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul gives us that encouragement. He says, be imitators of God. Right? Embrace your identity as sons and daughters and mimic your Father in heaven. If you were here last week, Pastor Daniel gave probably the most adorable sermon illustration ever. He showed a picture of his 10-month-old little Raph right, sticking out his tongue, mimicking his own earthly father. It was adorable. Right? It was the, the, the perfect image of what it looks like to mimic your father. But Paul doesn't stop with that encouragement. He actually, he goes on to point us to Jesus as our perfect example of how we are to imitate God. Right In verse 2, he says that you, you do this, you imitate God by following the example of Jesus, who Paul tells us loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what he's saying is that if you want to walk in love, right, if you want to show the world who you are, like Pastor Daniel preached about last week, if you want to imitate your Father in heaven, then you need to strive to meet the standard that Jesus set. Did Jesus come struggling for power? No. What did he do? He came and he humbly submitted to the Father's will. And he sacrificed in order that he might save others. So that's the call for each of us. It's humble submission and it's selfless sacrifice, not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of others. So as we look now to God's word, to Ephesians chapter 5, and as we consider what this looks like in our relationships, I want to make sure that you understand that the standard was set by Jesus. No matter what role you might find yourself in, it doesn't matter. The standard was set by Jesus because all authority had been given to Jesus. 
And what did he choose to do? He chose to submit to the will of the Father. All authority had been given to Jesus. All power belonged to him. And yet, he chose to use that power to sacrifice for the sake of others. He set the standard for us. Right? And what he did is he gave us this countercultural solution to all of our power struggles. The countercultural solution to all of our power struggles is to pursue peace through those same postures, through submission and through sacrifice. And so this morning, what Paul is going to do is he's going to show us what that looks like in each of the key areas of our lives. So we're talking about marriage, we're talking about family, and we're talking about work. And in each of these cases, what Paul's going to do is he's going to point us towards God's purpose for those relationships. And in doing that, he's going to show us the path towards peace. So let's dive into God's word together this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. If you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, if not, it should be up here on the screen behind me. Paul starts in verse 22 by saying, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now we're going to pause right there because I want you to feel some of that tension. Y'all feel it? See, my guess is that even if you're not married, there was something in those eight verses that kind of, kind of bristled at you, right? Something that didn't sit well with you. Why is that? Well, it's because it's encouragement Paul gives to submit or to sacrifice. Man, it, it threatens our way. It threatens our way. Right? It, 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 it puts our happiness at risk. I don't want to submit. If I submit, then I won't be happy. If I have to sacrifice, like, what's in it for me? But here's the simple truth I want you to know. And I think this simple truth, it'll shape how you receive all of these truths that follow. That God's purpose for marriage is holiness, not happiness. God's purpose for marriage is holiness, not happiness. That's point number one if you're taking notes here this morning. See, the reason why we, we bristle at these commands is because we've allowed our marriages to be shaped by culture rather than by our creator. We've allowed our marriages to be shaped by our culture rather than by our creator. And as a result, we've come to measure our marriages by the amount of happiness our spouse brings to us rather than the amount of holiness that God brings out of us. Let me say that again. We've come to measure the health and the success of our marriages by how much happiness our spouse brings to us rather than the holiness that God brings out of us. Well, it's no wonder then why marriages are failing at the same rate inside the church as they are outside the church. Right? It's because we're operating based off of their model and we're measuring ourselves based off of their measurements instead of God's. The purpose of marriage is holiness. It's not happiness. When we give up that idea and we embrace this truth, man, we're able to give up that power struggle. Because now submission and sacrifice, they're not obligations, they're opportunities. They're not things that we have to do, they're things that we get to do to model the love of Jesus to our spouse and to the world around us. Are y'all with me this morning? Are y'all with me this morning? Yes, there we go. Okay, good. I want to dig a little bit deeper here, okay? 
I want to show you a picture of what this actually looks like, okay? So I've asked a very special couple in our church family to come and be my examples up here. So would y'all put your hands together for Steve and Karen Delaware? Now, this couple has an incredible marriage story, and so they've lived out some of what I'm going to talk about. But I want to show you guys a, a, a two pictures, okay? The first picture is what it's going to look like when couples chase after happiness, when they go the ways of the world. So what I want you all to do is to come on either side of this table. Okay, Karen over here, Steve over there. And I want you guys to arm wrestle, all right? So go ahead, get, get ready. I'm going to be your judge, okay? We're just doing this one time, okay? So make it count. Okay, who's on, who's on Team Steve? Okay, who's on Team Karen? I, I figured, I figured. Y'all ready? On your marks, get set, go. Oh. <laughs> stay up here, stay up here. Now, I know this is a ridiculous example, okay, but this is a picture of what it looks like when we see marriage as a means of happiness, right? Rather than having your spouse be on, on your team, you put them on the other side of the table Right? And you're going to do whatever it takes to get your way. That's what marriage looks like. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. That's marriage as a power struggle. But Paul paints a different picture for us. Right? One in which husband and wife have clearly defined roles that are both moving towards the same purpose. Right? Where they're in step with each other, moving towards the same goal. So I've got one more thing I want to ask you guys to do. Okay? I'm going to move this table out of the way. And I've, uh, I've got our production team back there with a song queued up. And so I just want you guys to give us a little slow dance. Can you do that for me? Can you do that for me? All right. Let's go ahead, production team. Now, here's what I want y'all to notice. Are they struggling against each other anymore? Oh, of course they're not. Because they understand, right, one of them needs to lead and the other one needs to follow. And what happens when they do this is beautiful, isn't it? It's not a power struggle. This is what submission and sacrifice is meant to look like. All right, y'all can put your hands together for Karen and Steve. And for our boy Enrique Iglesias. That one is always a hit. Well, I hope you can see by now what marriage is supposed to look like. That it's about holiness, not happiness. It becomes a whole lot easier to give up that power struggle and to see submission and sacrifice as opportunities then to reflect the heart of Jesus to your spouse and to the world. So God's purpose for marriage is holiness. It is not happiness. Before we move on to, to some of the direction for our families, I want to actually just recommend a resource to you. There's a book that's called Sacred Marriage. It's by a guy named Gary Thomas, and it really focuses really just around that principle, that marriage is being about holiness and not about happiness. Couldn't recommend this book anymore. All right, let's shift our focus back to God's word now as Paul shifts his focus towards the power struggle that exists within our family units. So join me, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, why does Paul feel the need to just go ahead and repeat and to quote the fifth commandment here? Well, my guess is that the, the families in that early church in Ephesus, they were dealing with the same power struggle that we face today. 
And see, I think that same principle that we talked about with marriage actually applies here. Because a parent's job isn't to make their kids happy. All right, to so show their kids what it is to be holy. I think the best way to maybe frame that in our current context for our families then is to say that God's purpose for families is discipleship, not democracy. God's purpose for families is discipleship, not democracy. And I wish this didn't need explaining, but I actually kind of think that it does. Because again, we've allowed our, our families to be shaped by culture rather than by our creator. And so parents have come to believe that the amount of love that they have for their kids is equal to the amount of freedom that they give them. We say that again. <laughs> culture has led us to believe that the amount of love we have for our kids is equal to the amount of freedom that we give them. Right? That, that, that the less we discipline them, the more that we love them. And so what we have is we got kids who can't even wipe their own butts who are calling their shots in the family. Right, we've got kids who are still getting buckled into car seats who are in the driver's seat when it comes to the decisions that are being made on behalf of their family. It's kind of funny, but it's also kind of true. We've got families who are out of balance because parents have been led to believe this lie that their love for their kids is equal to the amount of freedom that they give them. But here's the thing, the freedom that, that parents are, are giving to their kids like that, it's not freedom at all. It's really a false sense of freedom. It's like letting them jump out of an airplane without a parachute on their back. Are they going to be free? Yeah, for a little while. But gravity's still there. Life still happens. There is a price to pay for that freedom. That was never really freedom at all. And listen, I know that like, it's a cardinal sin to critique anybody's parenting these days. God forbid. But I've got the mic, and so here we go. <laughs> Here's the deal, y'all. I'm so tired of seeing passive parenting. I'm so tired of seeing passive parenting, of, of witnessing what happens when parents believe that life, that their, their love for their kids is reflected in the amount of freedom that they give them. That's not true. Right? God's purpose for your family was not that it would be a democracy, but that it would be the epicenter of discipleship. That's why Paul speaks to training and instruction and discipline. Friends, it's because when you sacrifice and when you actually do these things, that's when your true love is put on display for your kids and for the world to see. And again, I want to give you a picture of what this looks like. I'm not going to invite a family up to arm wrestle or anything like that, but, but what I want to show you is a, is a picture of an oak and an acorn. Of an oak and an acorn. I think that this perfectly describes what it looks like to have a family that is based in discipleship. And I think what Paul is going to show us is, is three important truths that speak to what this looks like, to give up that power struggle and to embrace discipleship for your family. So when we think about an, an acorn that becomes a great oak, the first thing that, that needs to happen to that acorn is it needs to be rooted. Okay, it needs to be rooted. When Paul tells fathers not to provoke their children to anger, what he's saying is, hey, your, your kids, they can't flourish in harsh environments. Yes, once they're great oak trees, they can withstand that fierce storm, but not while they're little. So we need to treat them like the acorns that they are. They need to be planted in healthy places. They need to be given that fertile soil where they can really put down roots. And parents, this begins with that physical place where your acorns are planted. It begins right at home. So is your home a healthy place where your child can flourish? I want you to actually think about that for a second. I read a stat the other day that says that 83% of a child's life is spent at home. 83%. You want to know uh, what percentage is spent at church? 
One. One percent. And that's for a family who's actually like fully engaged in what's going on at church. So listen, you can bring your kids here. We will love them and lead them as best we can. We will do everything we can for them. But we can't make up for what you do at home. We can be there for them one, maybe two or three percent of the time. We cannot be there 83 percent of the time. Your home is where your kids learn and grow the most. So what environment are they rooted in? Our little acorns, they need to be rooted. They also need to be nourished. Just like an acorn needs to have enough water and sunlight to grow, your kids need to be fed the kind of things that are going to nourish them. I'm not just talking about physically, although that's important. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. This is why they need constant encouragement. Why they need to be hearing and reading God's word. It's why they need to be witnessing healthy relationships because all of these things, they get absorbed by them. So if your home is that soil where your kids are rooted... And what kind of nourishment are they receiving? And I'm not here to like advocate for one parenting style over another. I don't even know what the names of these parenting styles are. What I'm challenging you to do is to be intentional. To be intentional in your parenting. To actually care about the things that your child is being fed. Right? To pay attention to the media that they're consuming. To get to know the, the friends that they're hanging around. Take an interest in the things that interest them. Right, to keep an eye on the things that they are absorbing because in the end, that is who they are going to become. That's who they're going to become. Our acorns need to be rooted in good soil. They need to be nourished. And lastly, they need to be trained up. They need to be trained up. This is where discipline and instruction come into play. I want you to think about it like those straightening posts that you'll see on some young trees. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like those two on the side there? Now, why is that stake put there? Well, it's there to help the tree grow up the way that it's supposed to, right? Is that tree feeling the tension? Is that tree feeling a whole lot of freedom? No, probably not. But in the end, that's what's enabling it to grow up to be the great oak that it was meant to be. Y'all still following me, with me on this illustration? This is what discipline does. This is why it's important that we stand firm in our discipline. Because eventually your kids are going to get old enough, they're not going to need those stakes there anymore. But your ability to stand firm in discipline... While they're still young, it'll give them the best chance to flourish for a lifetime. I want to point out one other thing this morning. That discipline is about more than just being firm. Discipline is about more than just being firm. Firmness is important, but being close is even more important. If you look at that picture of the stake in the tree, is it going to do the tree any good if the tree is all the way over here and the stake's all the way over there? No, of course not why they put those things right next to the tree in the same way we need to be actively engaged with our kids to be present not just physically but mentally emotionally and spiritually engaged in their lives no more passive parenting no more passive parenting our kids they need to be rooted they need to be nourished and they need to be trained up and the reality is while this takes a great amount of trust and submission on behalf of our kids, it requires a whole lot more sacrifice from each of us. Because let's be honest, y'all. It's hard to stay actively engaged. I know you got a lot on your plate. I know work's crazy. I know relationships are hard. It doesn't matter. You got to stay close to those kids. You got to have them rooted, nourished, and trained up. Again, I want to give you guys a resource if this is something you want to go a little bit deeper into. There's a great book from a couple of dear friends, Doug and Paula Lay. It's called The Perfect Parent. 
couldn't recommend this highly enough. We actually did uh, some small group studies with some families over this last summer, and it proved to be hugely, hugely beneficial for our people. So would encourage you to pick that up. I've actually got two copies up here, and so first couple people after the service, don't come running up, you guys can have one of those copies for free. All right. We are almost to the finishing point, but we've yet to hit one specific area of our lives. That's another important one that Paul addresses, and that's the area of work. Let's hear what God has to say for our power struggle at work. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, as I invite the band back up. Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Math masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, I know that the context of this passage, it varies pretty dramatically from the one that we find ourselves in today. But if you look beneath the obvious differences, you will see that the foundational principles, they still apply to us today. That the work that we are doing is to be done as if it were being done for Christ. What this means is that even the most mundane of jobs, doesn't matter what you do, should not be viewed primarily as work, but as worship. It's as worship. Right, that these, these roles are not obligations, they are opportunities for us to put Christ on display. That points us to God's purpose for work. It's mission, not money. It's mission, not money. Again, what we see here for the third straight time is that we have allowed work to be defined by our culture rather than by our creator. And so as a result, work has just become a, a means to a financial end, which means that those around us have become an obstacle to that means. They become an obstacle to our happiness rather than becoming our mission. What Paul is saying here is that no matter what you do, do that work as if you were doing it for the Lord. That work is mission, not money, which means you are now all in full-time ministry. Congratulations. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to say is that we need to stop drawing this, this line between sacred work and secular work. Because any kind of work can be turned into worship if you do it in light of eternity. I get that you may not work for a church, but the reality is when you, when you go to work and you put your, your gloves on or your apron on, you don't get to take off your identity in Christ. When you walk into the, the doors of your church, you don't get to leave behind your identity as a child of God. Because the whole idea of being a Christian is that you actually take that identity, you carry Jesus' name in with you into those places. And you put the love of Jesus on and you're able to share it, able to make your workplace your mission field. And friends, what happens when you do this, when you approach your work with this attitude and let go of that power struggle, it allows you to not just leave behind that power struggle, that tension you've been feeling with your boss, or your, your coworker, your clients. It's what enables you to, to turn your work into worship and for your worship to become your witness. Your work becomes worship and your worship becomes your witness. It doesn't just bring peace to your relationships. It introduces those around you to a peace they could never find on their own. I'm talking about the true and lasting peace. And that brings us right back to where we started. It brings us back 
to Jesus. See, Jesus is the only true solution for every power struggle. I think for a lot of us, when we encounter these power struggles in our lives, we try to find these solutions on our own, right? Oh, we got some friction in our family. We're going to sit down and have a family meeting. Got some friction in my, my marriage. We're going to seek out some couples counseling. I'm going to, I'm going to read a self-help book. I'm going, to, I'm going to maybe set up a meeting at work. Hear me when I say that those are all good things, but none of them are the true solution. The only solution that will allow us to let go of our power struggle and to experience true peace is Jesus. It's Jesus. Because he's the one who came to give us the peace that we could never acquire on our own. And the peace that he came to give, it came at a price. A price that we deserve to pay but didn't have to because Jesus humbly submitted. Because Jesus offered himself up as our selfless sacrifice. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus didn't come looking for power which was rightly his, but he gave it all up gladly to become peace for us. And that peace that he came to give, friends, it now, it lives within you. You carry that peace within you, which means that you can bring peace to your relationships. And when you do that, you can introduce people to a peace like they have never known and like they couldn't get anywhere else other than in a relationship with Jesus. When we let go of the power struggle and when we choose to pursue peace, we become the masterpieces that God created us to be. So here's how I wanna close this morning. If you would stand to your feet. We don't do this very often, but I'd actually like for you, if you would, if you're comfortable with it, would you just grab the hand of the person next to you? I realize that maybe your spouse, it may be a complete stranger, but let this be a posture of your desire, no matter what your relationship is, to see the needs of others and to be willing to submit and sacrifice so that they might experience peace. Jesus, we thank you for the price that you paid so that we might experience this everlasting peace. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here this morning, that no matter what relationship they be in, no matter what uh, position they may be in that relationship, that they would see you as the standard, that they would see you as the example, and that they would imitate your humility, that they would imitate your selflessness, and that you would get the glory. It's in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen.